This is the Danger Close Podcast. Beyond the Books with me, Jack Carr. Welcome to the Danger Close Podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Navy Federal Credit Union. My guest today is my friend Samuel Katz. He's written something like 40 books on terrorism, special operations focused primarily on the Middle East. His latest book is called No Shadows in the Desert. He's also written hundreds of articles on terrorism and special operations. You can find out more about him at samuelkatzonline.com. And now, without further ado, Samuel Katz. Thank you so much for taking the time to do this today. I sincerely thank for you. Oh, well, I, I have, uh, as you can tell, I don't have all your books because how many have you written now? I have no idea. Yeah. <laughs> it's a lot. This isn't even half, I don't think. Um, but uh, but this is quite a few, as those watching can can see. But uh, what, what's the general ballpark? What do you think? Not counting journal. I mean, if you count journal articles and that sort of thing, there's no way probably Over keep track. Over 20 books and uh, hundreds of articles. Jeez. Amazing. Amazing. Um, and obviously, there's some um, October 7th. Uh, you've been studying the region. Israel, in particular, terrorism um, for uh, most of your adult life. Um, yes. I wanted to get your perspective on on a few things. Uh, first, where where are you right now, and uh, where were you on October seventh when you started getting the the news? Um, I'm here in New York City. I was planning to um, make my travel arrangements for Israel for the end of the month for a book that I. Um, I was commissioned to write um, details to follow and I woke up and found my wife talking to her parents, telling them to grab their medicine um, and run. And um, her parents are in Israel and I had no idea what she was talking about. And then I put the news on it at 630 in the morning and it was like, oh, shit. There we go again. But this, um, no one knew initially how bad it was, and nobody could fathom how bad it would be. Yeah. Did uh, how, how did they did they make it okay to get to someplace uh, safer anyway? Yeah, I mean they're they're elderly, and um, they've been through this dance before. But going in and out of up the stairs, down the stairs, into the hallway, down into the bomb shelter is. Um, is not really a way that people in a um, functioning democracy, a Western country, should have to live. Anybody, nobody should have to live that that way. Yeah. Did uh, oh, man, it's just it's so heartbreaking seeing those images come out of of, of Israel. Um, you spent your like we talked about. You've written all these these books, most of them on on terrorism in that that region of the of the world. Uh, did you in all of that study and experience that you have, do you know that something like this was going to come eventually based on the policies of uh, essentially containment and tolerable levels of violence coming out of Gaza and coming out of Lebanon from, from Hezbollah? Um, did you know that something was going to happen eventually? Or did you think, hey, this policy of tolerance, tolerable levels of violence can last for quite a while? But what were your thoughts on that? Well, I'll answer your second question first. Um, the situation was so um, untenable 
that there have been so many operations against Hez, um, Hamas and its rockets that nobody can remember all their names. And status quo um, is wonderful if you're um, if you're working at, at a company at that steady growth growth or whatever. But in dealing with a um, a movement that only thinks of your eradication, um, it was wishful thinking. And as you know better than most, so when you're planning an operation or or trying to um, wage war, um, praying for the best um, usually means um, the worst will happen. Yeah. So I, I I I could not imagine the scale of the um, the bloodshed of the massacre, and I think that Hamas didn't um, plan for the scale of the bloodshed and the massacre. And I think there, there are two points kind of how this this developed. Um, it was a complete failure from the top down um, in every level, political, military, intelligence, you name it. It was a perfect storm of opportunity for Hamas, the music festival happening, it being a holiday. And um, Israelis were more or less at war with uh, with one another. The political situation in the country was going into a very bad direction. And I think that Israeli planners, Israeli tacticians, intelligence individuals, did not think that the enemy, if it's from the North or from the South, would do anything that could unify the country. And they did. So, Historically, Hamas has used potential and real oncoming peace treaties as um, a chance to go to war, a chance to do something really horrible. Um, in 1994, about a week or so before Jordan and Israel were going to sign the peace treaty, um, Hamas kidnapped a young soldier and held him for close to a week until Israeli commandos um, tried to storm the location. The storm, um, the operation failed. Um, the unit, the raid commander and the hostage were killed, but the Hamas wanted to try and torpedo the peace talks, but they didn't succeed. Here, Israel and Saudi Arabia were getting very close. Israeli ministers were attending conferences in Riyadh, unheard of unthinkable. And if Israel and Saudi Arabia would have come together in a peace treaty, that Middle Eastern reality, that global reality, because um, it would have sort of taken away the Islamic argument against Israel, would have really rendered Hamas and the Iranian proxies to um, stories of a bygone day. Um, they were no longer relevant. And relevance for a terrorist army is all important. Hmm. Do you think that the, the those uh, those talks uh, agreements that were essentially on the on the brink um, of coming to fruition are those temporarily derailed? Are those uh, completely derailed, or uh, does this provide, uh, like you said, opportunity uh, for those to go through and uh, with 
I mean, you have the Gulf states, obviously, and then you have Iran, Israel, U.S. There's a lot of, and then not to mention Russia, China, and trading partners, Iran, China, that that dynamic. Um, do you think it's an opportunity for the the talks to to go through uh, at a difficult time? Oh, um, having um, traveled in the Middle East, having written about the Middle East, and having known Middle Easterners most of my adult life, um, optimism is not something that you want to go to the bank with. Hmm. However, and I think that this is important, um, the Israelis are now planning something for Gaza. Uh, this is without question. This is not um, revealing any secrets. There are 300,000 soldiers amassed on the frontiers with Gaza to do something. What happens the day after is what will sort of define what the Middle East will be. And I think that there is an enormous opportunity for the Saudi-Israeli peace talks um, understanding to move faster rather than slower. I think that this is an opportunity for people interested in a newer Middle East to seize the narrative. And it depends on a lot of things. And it depends if the Palestinians want to go along with it. And Hamas will be destroyed or disfigured. I mean, I think that that's a given. Um, if that message is destroyed or disfigured with it, meaning that the religious fire to annihilate the Jewish people, to go from um, you know what the saying is for a lot of the protesters on universities, which is a topic that we could spend hours on, when people screaming from river to sea, Palestine will be free, which is basically means that um, every Jew inside the country is going to be butchered. Um, if that paradigm can change somehow by freeing the Palestinians from Hamas, then there's a chance for the future. And the chance is going to depend on the Israeli ability to forgive and forget, which I don't know if that's possible. Yeah, Golda Meir had a had a uh, uh, quote. I, I think it was fifty. It was one in the late fifties, one in the uh, the mid sixties, and, and I'll, I'll mix them up here. But the general gist was, um, we can forgive you for killing our our sons and daughters. We cannot forgive you for forcing us to kill yours. Something Absolutely. Along the way. It's very powerful. Uh, there was, there was a, um, I forget one of the networks, but there was a professor at um, Princeton who said, um, you know, the world will be better when um, beautiful Israeli babies and beautiful Palestinian babies um, share an equal footing. Well, I think that, I, I, you know, that was such a Pollyanna um, way of describing the world. You can tell he spent most of his life behind a, a desk. Um, the world will be a better place when the Palestinians um, cherish their beautiful children the same way that uh, the Jewish parents cherish theirs. Yeah. And not yeah, expose their kids to constant conflict for a conflict that in reality, when you think about it on, on realistic terms, it, it is impossible for them to win. Yeah. yeah, there's another one that was similar to that. I think it was Golda Meir as well, who said that um, peace will come when Palestinian parents love their children more than they hate the Jews. Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, man. The, 
we've been studying terrorism for for a long time or intelligence community military side of the house and from me looking in for as a person who has been studying this my whole life and reading about this my my whole life as well i had this this sense some of it enforced reinforced by popular culture but much of it from the pages of history the israeli army standing up to larger armies more technically advanced militaries um what they ha have done on the intelligence side of the house to keep iran from getting uh, a nuclear weapon um there was this this aura that the both the military and the intelligence services in israel had and uh there's uh let's say massage shinbet and um amam uh, it's like cia fbi and military intelligence uh essentially and they had this aura not of invincibility but of, i would say a mystique uh about where they had people and where they were getting their intelligence what they could accomplish um that seems to have taken a big hit uh on october 7th the intelligence side of the house took a torpedo to the bow yeah the um well there's several factors a you're never as good as your hype b you're only as good as your last screw up and the problem with gaza was the same as the problem that existed in the west bank during the second intifada that prompted the Israelis to go in in um, in 2002 after the Passover massacre, and that is they didn't really have eyes and ears in the Gaza Strip that were reliable because it was a closed off um, piece of land, and it was very difficult for Israeli agents, Israeli intelligence, to operate there. There was an operation that was um, revealed to the press when a very secret intelligence unit um, was compromised at a roadblock and uh, the commander um, was killed a, a few years back um, his identity is still secret and it showed the difficulty of having reliable eyes and ears on target and if you don't have that human eye-to-eye -eye element and you rely on technology um, you know, all of those bells and whistles of um, eavesdropping and signal intelligence and knowing what people are thinking because um, their phones are on, um, that has a danger because people could say whatever they want on the phone um, if they're not revealing themselves, if they're trying to um, fool you. But if you're sitting in a cafe somewhere in Gaza looking at someone eye to eye, you can tell if he's lying or not. You can assess the situation. And the Israelis lack that that was denied to them um so they had to rely on other measures and when you rely on technology and, and well let's put it this way every army in history that has hid behind the wall has been defeated mm. interesting and the, the the israelis are no different they hid behind fences and all sorts of technological means and balloons to monitor and the Palestinians continuously tested it they tested it with um large demonstrations near the border to see how close they could go um they tried it with all sorts of ways by throwing balloons over the fence to see if they could land and they could set fire to um agricultural fields so all these little probing actions on their own were just benign but in the larger sense, they created a, an offensive intelligence picture for the Palestinians that gave them a very clear cut idea as to what's going on. 
also the Israelis try to give the Palestinians slightly a slightly better life by letting about 20,000 come and work in Israel. Well, a lot of them worked in the agricultural settlements that were targeted. So you had these people earning salaries who were eyes and ears on Israeli targets, and they provided intelligence. So it, that on its own was a perfect storm. You add the political chaos in Israel, where a government of a very right-wing government was, was elect or created a coalition. A lot of the individuals in that coalition were um, inept, incapable, dishonest, and they were leading the country in a direction where the backbone of the country, people who served in the military, the defense element of the People's Army of the Citizenry were out in protest. We have to remember that in February, I believe, um, the Army Chief of Staff, um, himself an operator, former operator, wanted to speak to the Prime Minister, stating that the political disarray in the country, the judicial overhaul that Netanyahu's government was trying to pass, was weakening the defense establishment, and Netanyahu refused to see him. And when the defense minister, um, Yoav Gallant, wanted to see him and speak to him about the same thing, Gallant being a former commander of um, Flotilla 13, the Israeli naval seals, um, Netanyahu fired him. And, and that firing led to the massive protests every week. So if you have the government saying that the defense the people in the defense hierarchy are left-wing traitors and they can't be, or they shouldn't be believed. Um, it's gonna be very hard for Intel to find its way forward up and to reach the decision makers. You know, there was a report that Israel's Channel 12 showed a couple of days ago, where they spoke to some um, young conscripts some female soldiers who worked in the observation towers opposite Gaza. And they've been reporting for weeks and months that there's unusual activity on the Palestinian side of the fence. And that material fell on deaf ears. So as, well, as you know, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not saying anything new to you, but as you know, if um, the people on the top aren't listening to the intel, intel is useless. I wonder if that's the same observation post I read about, um, man, man, mostly by female soldiers uh, that were massacred fairly early on um that didn't have the proper weapons to defend themselves the proper security to defend themselves i wonder if that's the same same group that was reporting on all we'll find out in the, the months and, and years ahead of course as more uh, information becomes available but uh it's the the same if that's the same observation group area headquarters bob whatever they call them over there uh that was reporting this unusual activity that got hit and got massacred um, because they didn't have the proper security in place. Uh, so it's heartbreaking. Yeah. Across well, the they weren't prepared to, um, to handle 1,500, 2,000 terrorists. Yeah. Yeah. That's something else I want to ask you about in a second, but going back to SIGINT and more technical means of gathering intelligence, it seems like uh, outcome being 
a bit different, but similar to at the end of the Cold War as technology on our side is uh, starting to increase uh, leaps and bounds and we decide into the Cold War and there are talks about what to do and where to allocate resources going forward and the human side of the house, the human intelligence collection kind of took us took a second place to some of this more technical intelligence and satellites and everything else that was uh, was going on at the time at the end of the, the Cold War. Um, and of course, that came back to, to haunt the United States. Um, it seems like maybe something similar happened here, but not by choice. It was seems like because of a policy that is put in place that um, essentially Israel out of Gaza, Gaza is governing itself, Hamas takes power in there, and Israel is not uh, in there at all to be able to do the human collection, um, but they can collect technically, which, of course, Hamas knows. So what do you do? Well, you adapt and then you start communicating in ways or spreading other disinformation, maybe on the ways they know, you know, that your enemy is listening to, uh, and then talking using some of the more uh, traditional type of uh, tradecraft to communicate uh, that can't be collected by a censor. So uh, it seems like there's some similarities to the end of the Cold War. Yes, it's, it's a fatal mistake to think that um, your enemy isn't adapting to your moves and your yeah. overconfidence and your inability to gain human access inside. I mean, to think that for some reason, um, a few good paying jobs inside Israel would change the Hamas charter or sway the Iranians or the Qataris from supporting the military infrastructure that was allowed to be built in Gaza was naive. Mm -hmm. And sadly, um, there's there's another component that needs to be to be discussed. The um, in 2014, the last time the Israelis went into Gaza physically, um, Israel did not have a large window to achieve its military objectives. Of course, Israel really didn't have military objectives, but that's that's another argument. And there was an incident similar to the hospital incident that happened. Um, when the world was outraged by, by in this case, um, an Islamic Jihad rocket that um, the Palestinians turned into propaganda. But in 2014, an Israeli um, strike hit the UN school, a UN school in Gaza. And because the UN school, which was supposed to be off limits, was home to a command and control se um, um, section. It was where Hamas stored rockets and explosives and prepared suicide bombers, a legitimate military target. When the Israelis hit it, President Obama said that he was appalled. When the US president says that he's appalled, it limits your freedom of action. It endangers your soldiers. And I think the difference here is that, and sadly, 1,400 people had to be butchered, but it allowed the world to see Hamas for what it was, what it is, and what needs to be done to eradicate it. And I think here the Israelis have a bit more freedom of action, a lot more freedom of action, to do what needs to be done, to basically remove um, Iranian terror hubs, proxy hubs, from its frontiers. We couldn't live with it with Iran, both in Canada and Mexico, and Israel can't live with it really in Gaza and southern Lebanon. Yeah, it's really interesting to see and observe the difference in reporting uh, from institutions generally, uh, specific people, um, 
differences between how Ukraine is reported on and how Israel is being reported on, um, meaning calls for ceasefire, restraint, cycles of violence, understanding when it comes to Israel. Those were absent for the most part, generally, when it comes to those same institutions reporting on Ukraine. And I'm wondering how you see the, the difference in that reporting. Well, I could give you an academic analysis, but the reality is that um, Jews in the rest of the world are perceived differently. Um, and um, uh, there weren't mass protests in Times Square supporting um, Putin. There are protests in Times Square supporting Hamas. There are protests in Los Angeles. There are protests at the um, Ivy League institutions. Um, there are networks in this country that refuse to call um, the psychopaths, the sociopaths that carried out the butchery terrorists. They call them militants. Militants is, is a militant is someone who puts ketchup on a hot dog. Um, it, it's not someone who um, who beheads a baby. These are stone cold killers. These are uh, the, these are individuals who've been reared their entire lives for this moment. And we can go into the politics that created it, the money that went to educate and brainwash and indoctrinate them. But until that moral clarity is established, um, anytime the Israelis take out someone of value, someone with blood on his hands, there'll be people who will be saying that the response is disproportionate and that there needs to be rationality and morality in what Israelis do. Yeah, you don't hear that coming from those same people about Ukraine for the most part, generally. No. Um, and it is very telling. It's extremely telling. This has highlighted, uh, uh, I think, a lot of anti-Semitism uh, across the world. Um, you think? And, and it's out there. I mean, not not like, uh, not veiled. That's what I mean. I mean, not veiled, where maybe that was the case before. Not generally. Not so much anymore. These are very specific uh, incidents, and they're proud of it. It's it's extremely telling and heartbreaking, considering it's, it's horrific, and it suits a political and um, an abhorrent um, narrative. And it the anti-Semitism has been there since the time of man. Um, but recently, in recent years, the anti-Semitism has been festering, uh, growing boil everywhere. And the slaughter of Jews um, became the pinprick that let all the, um, the cancer out of the, the tumor. And, it's, and people are un unapologetic. It's horrible. And I think that this is a danger because um, it... It, it unites crazies on both sides of the political spectrum, and it really um, inhibits what Israel has to do. I think that what 9-11 taught us, and a lesson we didn't learn, what ISIS taught us, another lesson we haven't learned, is that, and what this hopefully will teach us, is, is this is a battle of civilization. This is a battle of how differences are settled of how differences are allowed to be manipulated by powers, either religion or nation states. 
and how people are proxies and fodder um, in catastrophic um, endgames that could lead to tens of thousands of dead. I mean, uh, I, I'm, I'm, I have a, high, a New York City high school um, education, so forgive my math. But what happened in Israel was, was about 15 or 20 9-11s, if you do the proportionality um, of it. What would the United States have done? You know, in, in Great Britain on the BBC, there's a great amount of talk about rationality and morality. Um, but I don't remember um, people in Britain wondering about that when um, Dresden had to be firebombed to bring that war to an end. And, and I think that common sense has left the building. And sadly, um, good people have died and will have to die as a result. And at this time, 2023, there are so many more tools out there that one can use to manipulate a populace visually using essentially marketing techniques um, to manipulate a populace, um, control behaviors, thoughts even. It's, uh, it's a remarkable time to be alive, meaning you have to put in the work these days, much more so, I think, than you did in the past. It's always been a responsibility of the citizenry to be, be informed, understand the history behind an issue. We haven't always been good at it, uh, but now it you have to do that for these future generations. You have to put that requisite time, energy, and effort into the study of history, what led us to this point, so you can better understand it, so you can cast a vote so that you can uh, raise your children to be also informed citizens. Uh, and it's just a tough time to do that with all those inputs coming in, all those ways that you can be manipulated. And it's um, it's tough, particularly when it comes to this issue and it comes to, to Israel in particular. Israel highlights how uh, important it is to it's sift through. Technology is overwhelming us and it's made us as thick as a brick. I mean, look yeah. at the hospital that um, that was allegedly hit, um, that, that created political and um, turmoil and violence. Um, the claims were 500 to 1,000 killed, the hospital destroyed. It was an errant Palestinian Islamic Jihad rocket. And now they're saying that only 10 or 50 armed people have been killed. But think of how many people could have died as a result of misinformation and sloppy reporting. Yep. Oh, yeah. And that CNN effect. And uh, again, going back to, to Ukraine, when they tell us that uh, Russia is targeting hospitals, that's what comes out in the news. Uh, here you have Israel doing its due diligence to check to see, did we do this? Um, and the answer was no. Uh, Hamas says it was. So what do you see in the news? Predominantly, you see the Hamas story. It's fascinating. Um, it's, it, yeah, anyway, moving on from that though, going back to Israel intelligence and military, um, there was also this image that I had growing up and it was uh, black and white photos from let's say late forties, early fifties, sixties of the citizen soldier in Israel, a woman standing guard in her kibbutz with an old Mauser. Uh, bolt action rifle type of a standing 
tall, standing proud, ready to defend uh, her homeland and her family, her life. Um, and now we have what we saw on October 7th, those kibbutz, same kibbutzes uh, getting overrun and uh, an IDF that was, uh, wasn't there to, to respond. And the citizens also, for the most part, not armed to defend themselves. Like in those photos that I saw growing up in the magazines and in encyclopedias and anywhere I could find anything on uh, on military, that region of the world, there was that, there was that, that vision of the citizen soldiers standing out there with a less technically advanced weapon system standing against uh, almost impossible odds that we didn't see that that all the, these years that have passed something whether it's proliferation of more gun laws more control by the government uh, more trust that the government's going to protect you uh, that this intelligence service uh, is going to protect you this military is going to protect you but taking those arms away from the citizens um, seems to have played into this unfortunately i i think the citizens um many were armed many defended themselves but when Hamas attacked. They also hit the army bases, um, which the Israelis weren't quite ready for. And the army bases, um, again, it was a holiday. It was a Saturday. Um, people were on leave. Um, they hit at the most vulnerable, vulnerable time imaginable. And the army bases were fighting for their own survival and unable to be the quick reaction force. So what happened? was that all of the um, tier one units in Israel that had their readiness group rushed down there as fast as humanly possible and engaged the terrorists. So if you look at the at the dead, the 160 plus soldiers that who were killed and, poli and 51 policemen were killed, um, you see officers from the general staff reconnaissance unit, say, or at Matkal. You see officers and, and, and operators from Flotilla 13 from all of the uh, nine members of the imam were killed. So, so you see all these individuals from the very elite units race down there and they helped um, liberate, rescue the army bases that were inundated with three, 400 terrorists, heavily armed, um, well, well stocked with communications and um, the terrorists fought fiercely and the operators had to fight twice as, as fierce. And, and there were 30 or 40 battles going on simultaneously. Command and control were, um, were, were very, very difficult. There was the IDF released um, footage of the Flotilla 13 um, rescue of 250 soldiers from a base. Um, soldiers didn't sleep with their weapons. The weapons were in the armory. Um, by the time the alarm sounded, it was too late. Um, you know, the analogies to Pearl Harbor are, um, are accurate. Um, it, it was, with everything considered, it was the worst of all combinations for Israel and the most opportune for the Palestinians. The Palestinians breached the fence, the border, above ground by the sea and, um, and underground. And once the holes in the fence existed, um, every, um, you know, forgive the term swinging dick in Gaza with an AK-47 came over the fence. And now you had um, thousands who were inside those communities. And then once they were there, you had people coming over to loot, to rob, to steal, 
to mutilate. So the number of um, you know the number of individuals that came out was a human invasion, and it had to be beaten back. And this wasn't the scenario that the Israelis had war games for. That specific scenario they had always thought would come from the north, from Hezbollah. Mm -hmm. Because they figured that Hezbollah was more military capable to carry out that sort of invasion. And they figured that Hamas um, had become reliant on, on homemade and Iranian-supplied rockets and would not risk such an operation. Yeah, it's by, it's very, by the very definition of response, uh, when you're talking about uh, military and, and police um, responding to an incident, it's already happened. And for me, I'm curious if there will be calls, particularly in the Gaza envelope right there for those uh, families, those kibbutzes there to take more ownership of their own defense. Uh, and if the government will have to make it easier for them to get the sort of weapons they need to defend against an attack like this, particularly if they're right there. Uh, and the army has proved that they are responding, which means they're coming after the fact. So I'm very curious to see what, uh, what that is in the in the aftermath of this. It seems like some very uh, some steps could be taken to allow the citizens to better defend themselves. Well, there was Israel before October 7th, and there'll be an Israel after October 7th. Um, there'll be two very different countries. Yeah. Uh, when we you mentioned hostages earlier, and there was a, a hostage taken who was, uh, was taking five years, uh, exchanged eventually for over five years, uh, over a thousand prisoners um, uh, in that exchange. And it shows how much value Israel places on life that they would be willing to exchange one soldier for, I think it was 1,200, over 1,000 anyway. Um, has that model now shifted, do you think, in the aftermath of this and all the reporting that you've done, all the writing that you've done, all the research that you've done on uh, counterterrorism units, uh, intelligence services? What do you, how do you think the hostage situation plays into this when you have the oh, i forget exactly how many they've said i think so 200 plus hostages spread around gaza possibly tunnels uh not also americans uh europeans i'm sure we have our um counter-terrorist forces down there hostage rescue units down there close by ready to go i'm sure that some units out of europe have done the same um what is how does that play into all this hamas historically has loved taking hostages um, one of their first acts um, was in the late 80s, the kidnapping of an Israeli soldier and um, hiding his remains, making him simply disappear and holding the location of the remains hostage. Then Hamas moved to um, the incident that I mentioned before, the kidnapping of the soldier right before the Jordanian-Israeli peace treaty. And then the incident that you're talking about, the kidnapping of Gilad Shalit in 2006. Israel released 1,200 terrorists. Many of them were guilty of the most heinous suicide, planning the most heinous suicide bombings. It was a painful ordeal. And I think that the willingness to um, negotiate gave Hamas more or less a, um, a store credit to think of kidnapping. However, um, I don't think Hamas intended to kidnap 200 people. I think many of the people that came in after the initial assault were seized by the second and third tier because it was the thing to do. And because um, you can imagine that rescuing 200 people is a nightmare. Looking after 200 people 
is just as much as of a nightmare. And it creates all sorts of um, public relation nightmares for Hamas. The seizing of grandmothers and babies. Um, Lord knows what they've done to the young women who, who they who they've taken into Gaza because we know what they did to the ones um, that were in Israel. They they raped them, they gang raped them, they mutilated them, they burned them alive. So one can only imagine the horrors that they're going through. And I think that the the lag time now between um, airstrikes and ground operation is probably um, an effort to try and locate as many as they as the hostages as can be located or to create some sort of means by which um, there's a bit of give and take, perhaps um, humanitarian aid and medicine for the people of Gaza and then the release of um, women and children, something. It also gives the um, the boots on the ground, and I know that people from your community aren't really boots, they're shadows, but it gives them the ability to sort of coordinate matters. I mean, it's it's colossal what has to be done considering that you have people from numerous nationalities. Um, I don't wanna speculate on who's there, but I'm sure that they're there and they're trying to figure this out and they're trying to do this in a way where, um, where you can rescue these people. And, and, and again, you know, um, hostage rescue is a manpower eater in terms of um, you know the rescue force, the backup team, the extraction force. Uh, I mean, we're talking about thousands and thousands of operators that have to be involved when you when you have 200 people. Um, I, I, I don't envy the, the individuals that have to plan all this. And the um, you know the operators themselves are facing a challenge I don't think that has ever existed in the history of warfare. Yeah, and I know I only have a few minutes left with you, and I sincerely appreciate you taking this time. But I wanted to ask you about Hezbollah because it obviously plays into a lot of the, the books you have written and uh, the history of Hezbollah, its creation, uh, uh, what it did in the '80s, how it's morphed, uh, its leadership, how it's been targeted. Um, you are very well versed in all of all of this, when especially when it comes to Hezbollah here. What do you see playing out in the north? And obviously we have, I think it's two carrier battle groups going into the Met. I wouldn't be surprised if something's coming up in Persian Gulf, Straits or Moose area from the Indian Ocean or Pacific or somewhere um, to put pressure on Iran to try to keep Hezbollah out of this fight. Um, but how do you see the Hezbollah side of this playing out? If I had a magic um, eight ball, um, I would, um, any guess that I would give would be wrong. So I'll, I'll give you um, just my opinion. Um, I think that um, Iran must have given the blessing to this. I'm sure that a lot of the tactics and material were supplied by Hezbollah. I believe that Hamas must have thought that if they strike a large strike at Israel, that Hezbollah would join in. And I think that Hezbollah took a property beating in 2006 in the second Lebanon war. Um, they lost money, they lost um, property, and they lost a lot of um, goodwill of the people that maybe supported them. I think that Hezbollah enjoys being in parliament in Lebanon. They enjoy their uh, narco-trafficking profits, and they don't really want to risk it. Um, 
so they're kind of trying to kick Israel in the kneecaps um, uh, every now and then now with rocket fire to see how it escalates. Um, mm -hmm. I think that Israel, whatever, I think that the carrier groups are to allow Israel the freedom to take care of Gaza first. And Hezbollah will have to be dealt with. And I think that Israel has all the moral imperative and national security um, urgency to eradicate Hezbollah as well. The only question is, is this going to be 1967 or 1973? 1967, that Israel preempts an attack to take out the targets on its terms, or 1973, where it has to take a hit for world sympathy and then deal with it and, and be victorious on its own. And that's always a political consideration for Israeli prime ministers. Yeah. And yeah, Hezbollah up north, I, I've, I've read that they have upwards of 150,000 rockets pointed at, at Israel um, with this paradigm shift that occurred on the 7th. It seems like that, that Israel will not wait until there's 300,000 rockets pointed at them before they take action. Uh, it just seems like that from the outside looking in anyway. I'm not, well, I don't know better. They don't have rockets. They have ballistic missiles. They have guided yeah. missiles. And they can reach almost anywhere in Israel. So it's a completely different story. And I think that President Biden and the world leaders, especially in the West, have realized that a war that can spread, um, allowing Iran or its proxies to dictate when and how it starts, truly endangers global security. And I think that with the Russians preoccupied in Ukraine, and the Chinese economy sort of um, not doing well, that um, this is not the time to placate the Iranians. Um, they too have shown their true hand, um, no matter how many times um, governments around the world have tried to um, whitewash them. And this will have to be dealt with um, sooner rather than later, and much better to handle this before the Iranians are a nuclear power. Yeah, in all the the research that you've done over all these years, and all these these books that you have uh, that you have written right here, um, when it comes to dealing with with terrorist organizations, whether it's uh, from within a country or an insurgency from inside a country, or it's uh, expeditionary counterinsurgency going overseas to deal with it elsewhere because an attack came from from another country. Um, what are some of the lessons that you have gleaned from all this research and talking to all the people that you have have spoken with and uh, all the study that you have done into these specific operations, which one have, have been successful, which ones have not been successful, which ones have been successful at the outset, seemingly, but have resulted in second and third order effects that were unanticipated that uh, actually hurt the country even more. Um, when you look at all all of that, what are some of the lessons that that you take uh, if you were advising uh, a military leader or um, a, uh, a prime minister or a president uh, when it comes to dealing with these sorts of organizations that specifically deliberately target civilians, women, children, not military targets. What what, is, what are those lessons that that you would pass on after all these years of, of work and study? I, I think that the lesson that can be learned is that you cannot live with them, adjacent to them, 
or allow them to become sanitized in the media. That is a, is a danger. Israel has mounted thousands of counter-terrorist operations. The U.S. has mounted thousands of counter-terrorist operations. Um, but that's a band-aid. Unless the people at the top, the people who finance them, the people who train them, the people who arm them are stopped as well. And all their rage, all their religious fury, all of their political gripes are, um, are contained where they cannot spread into violence, then you've won. But the, um, as, as long as terrorists have a voice, have the means, and have the ability to hold the world hostage, dictate events, dictate um, non-state players, the world is going to be a horribly dangerous place. And as social media has expanded and technology has expanded, they now have a real-time global audience. Um, you know, yesterday was the anniversary of the um, GSG-9 rescue at Mogadishu. Um, that wasn't done um, with, um, with news anchors um, embedded um, at the airport terminal. You learned about it the following day in the New York Times. The removal of distance between events and ramifications is um, incredibly dangerous. And I think that political leaders have to figure out how to return that distance so that we're not we're not receiving raw information because that that runs risks of of being completely false and like we saw with the hospital um and the and the errant rocket of sparking bloodshed that was completely unnecessary based on a lie based on a reporter eager to have a scoop Well, I thank you so much for taking all this time. I always enjoy talking to you. I learned so much every time we talk and from reading all your books. Uh, is the latest one still, it's so hard to keep up with you because you you write so much. Um, is, is the latest one still No Shadows in the Desert or did I miss one? That's the latest. I am working on um, on one that I will, you will be the first to know and I'll, um, I'll, I'll shoot you a message um, in private. I, I think you'll like it. And um, Fred Burton and I are always working together and conspiring. So it, our, our, um, our efforts continue. Wonderful. And Fred, of course, dear friend of ours. Uh, so people should pick up this. They should read everything, but uh, pick up No Shadows in the Desert for sure. And when you mentioned Fred Burton right here, this Beirut Rules is uh, such a fantastic book uh, because of, yes, the history, uh, yes, the lessons, but also the context that it provides uh, you in looking at that region. So uh, for sure, pick up these books and uh, thank you so much for taking this time. I really appreciate your insights and uh, looking forward to your next project. And please reach out if you need anything. Again, anything for you. Thank you so much for everything you do. And I hope to have the chance to speak to you soon. Sounds great. Take care. Thank you for tuning in to the Danger Close podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Navy Federal Credit Union. To find out more about Samuel Katz, go to samuelkatzonline.com. Follow him on the social channels from there. Pick up his books and be sure to pick up his latest, No Shadows in the Desert. You can find me at Jack Carr USA on the social channels. Officialjackcar.com is the website. Click on shop in the upper right-hand corner for the merch. And if you got something out of this conversation, be sure and leave a five-star rating and review wherever you get 
your podcast. Until the next time, take care out there, stay safe, be strong, keep fighting.